morning. It's great to be here, right? Good to be together. Glad to be here with you uh, this morning. Hey, quick show of hands. We're going to start with some uh, group participation. How many of you guys have heard of uh, a little, a little uh, restaurant in California, a burger joint called In-N-Out? I once met a, a young adult guy, but back when he was in college in Colorado, he loved In-N-Out so much <clears throat> that, that one night during college, classes ended on a Friday, and he said, man, I just really, really am craving In-N-Out. So what does he do? He gets in his car with two of his buddies, and he drives 24 hours to, to California, gets his In-N-Out, enjoys it, they get back in their car, and then they drive back to Colorado in time for Monday morning class. Some people just love In-N-Out. And I don't know what it is about In-N-Out, but everyone who seems to go to In-N-Out, like they have this food experience, right? It's like almost religious, right? They get there, and then they leave, and they can't help but tell everybody about how awesome In-N-Out is. Now, I'm not an In-N-Out guy, but I can tell you all about Amigos, how many of you guys have ever heard of Amigos? See, nobody. Maybe one, two, three. That's more than last, last time. Man, I can tell you all about Amigos. Amigos is a little Mexican chain uh, restaurant in, in Nebraska. Okay? And like of all places, right? And I can, let me just tell you this. It is so good. Taco Bell, you know, like Qdoba. Amigos, Awesome. It's so good. They're soft tacos, they're soft pinos, they're crisp meats, they're nachos. I love everything on their menu. Now we can talk all about these sorts of things, and it's easy for us to talk about these things, right? Because it's easy to talk about the things that we love. And, we, and, we, and here's, here's the reality. We actually love to talk about the things that we love. That's who we are by nature. We, that's, our, that's, our, that's our propensity. Our, uh, you know, that's what we love to do. If you were here this last week, we started a new series in the book of Acts called Witness. Now, a witness is this. A witness is someone who who can um, be adamant about putting their stamp of approval on something that they can claim as true. Right? So this is true because I saw it happen. Right? But a witness is also this. And hear this. A witness is also this. is someone who is talking about what they love. A witness is someone who is talking about what we love. And let me just tell you this. When we look at the word witness, we go, guys, you and I, together, we have the opportunity and the privilege to be witness to the greatest possible thing that the world could ever love. And that's Jesus. That's who we are. We're witnesses to Jesus the greatest possible thing, the person that we could ever love this last week. Chris started us in Acts chapter 1, and, and he unpacked the verse 8 for us, which really sets up uh, the book of Acts. It sets up our series, but it also sets up the entire church for, for kind of the rest of history to today. Acts 1.8 says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, here we are 2,000 years later after this, and I I want us to to remind ourselves that that we together, you and I, New City Church, are on this exact same journey. 
Because Acts 1-8 isn't finished. Because the gospel is still going everywhere. And I feel like sometimes for me, even as a pastor, and I would assume for you, that sometimes we, we kind of get stuck in, in a church coma, right? A kind of curriculum coma. And we just kind of do and do and do. But we forget that we're actually on this Acts 1-8 gospel journey, which is bringing the gospel to the, to the world. And so really it's as if God is saying, or Luke is depicting for us, right, the gospel is going to start in in that Jerusalem area. It's going to start right here. And then it's going to go there. 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 And by the way, in the end, the goal is that it would go everywhere. That's, that's the journey that we are on. And what God is calling us to today, it, it starts in Charlotte. It doesn't start in Jerusalem. It starts in Charlotte. It starts right here. But it can go there and there and there and there. And, and in the end, it can go everywhere. Because what God is calling us to is so much bigger than us. But it starts right here. It starts right here in Charlotte. And, and the first thing that I want to tell us this morning is that in order for us to, to be on this journey together, in order for this to kind of have an impact the first thing is this, is that the, you and I, we need to be active participants in this gospel journey. You, you and I need to be active participants in this gospel journey. And I'll tell you more about that in a second. Uh, this last week I was traveling and I flew down to Florida uh, for some church stuff. And, uh, and I was randomly assigned a seat, seat 14F. Okay, and if you know F, that's the one tucked into the corner by the window, right? And uh, we're all ready for the plane to take off. And then this maintenance guy gets up to the front and grabs the mic and he says this. Hey guys, I need, I need six people from row 14 and, and row uh, 28 to move to the front. I've never had this happen before. Maybe you have. Okay? And, and I'm like, okay. I look down the row. Unflinching. Nobody moves. I'm like, okay, well, you know, it's, it's the first time. He gets up and he, gets, he goes, guys, no, seriously, this is, this is a weight balance issue. We need six people from row 14 and row 28 to move to the front. And then he tries to sell it. He says, these are better seats. And then what makes me me feel stupid, right? I'm in row 14. These seats stink, you know? But he's like, hey, move to the front. And and finally, one girl from our row, from the middle row, from the middle aisle, she gets up. She goes, a few people from the back, but the guys next to me are like, (laughs) unflinching. And I was like, okay, all right. The guy gets back on the mic and he says, now here's what I need. I need 10 people from row 14 and row 26 to move to the back of the plane. As if, as if the front of the plane wasn't appealing enough. Now he's like, now you need to go to the back. And I look down the row, shocker. Mm-mm. Nobody moves. I'm flinching. And then this, this period of about 30 seconds of awkwardness builds. The, the plane is, is, is in tension because the guy is up there. He has asked everybody else who's not in row 14 or 28, they're just like, and we're like, you know? And we're, we're like there. And so the guy gets on the mic, and here, I kid you not, this is what he goes, he's forceful. He goes, I don't think you understand. This plane isn't going anywhere until people from, with, it, with emphasis, people from row 14. And row 26 moved to the back. And I'm like, man, this is a big deal. Mm -mm. (laughs) Unflinching. 
Nobody's moving. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So I finally like kick these guys out and then I go to the back. I'm like, it's really not that big of a deal. And so the guy's like, okay, it's done. But I look back up to the row 14 and I tell you what, I am baffled by, like, what just happened? Why, why, why are we so unwilling to move? Here's the deal. Here's why I tell that story. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes in life, I feel like God comes to me and he says, Seth, I'm glad that you're on the plane. And I want to go somewhere. And we're about to take off. But here's the deal. I need you to first move. I need you to be active in the sense that I need you to be willing to reposition yourself so this plane can take off. And sometimes I have the audacity to look Jesus in the face and go, mm-mm. <laughs> right? I'm just not going to move. That's who we are. We are stubborn, stubborn people. But before we can get into our text, we need to understand that the first thing that God is asking of us this morning is that we need to be active participants in this gospel journey, which means that we need to be willing to move when he asks us to move. This has already happened, by the way, in the book of Acts, because it's going to help us understand chapter 2. Because Jesus, right, before he ascends, he tells his people, he says, listen, I need you to go to Jerusalem, and I need you to wait in a house. Active and willing. See, they had to move. He says, I need you to move from here to there, and I need you to wait Be active and willing. But then he says this. He says it's not just that. There's a second part of the equation that I'm going to do. And it's going to, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. So it's not just that I need you to be active, but I need you to be dependent. I need you to receive the Holy Spirit. Because in order for this plan to do what it's going to do, the Holy Spirit has got to be the power source behind it. A couple of years ago, um, Francis Chan wrote a book called Forgotten God, which is really this. It's all about the Holy Spirit because we miss him it's so much in life. We can talk a lot about God the Father, and we can talk a lot about God the Son, and we can debate theology and all these points, but then it gets to, to God the Holy Spirit, and we're like, question mark? We just don't know a lot about him. We kind of forget about the larger role that he plays in redemptive history. And we forget that not only that, he plays an integral part of our daily lives, like right here and right now. The Holy Spirit says, I want to be working right now. In 10 minutes from now, in an hour from now, in a day from now, I want to be working. I love this quote from, from John Stott. It says this, without the Holy Spirit... Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and get this, no effective witness apart from his power. And this is how he ends. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. Guys, the Holy Spirit is such an important part 
of not only what's going to happen in our story today, but in a part of our very lives. And what God says is that in order for you to partake in this gospel journey, we're taking and in, in, in taking off this plane, I need you to be active participants, and I need you to be dependent participants. That's the secret sauce. That's what they put on In-N-Out burgers. That's a joke. Um, <laughs> some of you laughed. Um, but, but like that's the secret sauce, right? Is that we be active and we be dependent. In fact, uh, the Hebrew people knew this. And so they, they had a word for it. It's the word Kavanaugh. It means that when I show up to be obedient and I show up and I do my part, but it's not just me showing up and doing things. It's me showing up with the expectation that, that the Holy Spirit is going to show up and do his work as well. It's Kavanaugh. That's the bullseye of Christian life that I show up, but that the Spirit show up simultaneously and we work together. And in our passage today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and we're going to see this Kavanaugh kind of going into action as this plane begins to take off of the ground. God's going to do some amazing things. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Um, while you're turning, let me just give us a quick context and just reminder that here's where we are. We're, we're in Jerusalem, right? So Jesus has lived. He has died. He was, he was buried and dead for three days, right? He rose, and then for 40 days he appears, but then he ascends in Acts chapter 1, and what he has done is he's left behind a group of about 120 people, faithful believers who are waiting in this house, one single house in the middle of Jerusalem at Pentecost. And that's where we, that's where we pick up Acts chapter 2. I'll read verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right, so first thing that we, we hear, this is an incredible story, by the way. It's a really short depiction of what happens. But the first thing that we see is this word sudden, or the, the word I want to talk about is suddenly. This event happens suddenly, which really refers to all right, this extremely short period of time, kind of between my hands. And it's as if this is that God is saying or that Luke is depicting that what God is going to do in this short period of time is he's going to radically change the course of events. What was the old course of events is now going to become a new course of events. And it's going to radically shift history. In this sudden and tiny moment in time, things are going to be different and they're going to look different. And that started in the resurrection, right? It started on the cross, right? And then he's, he, he dies and he's buried and then he raises again, right? And so all of the components necessary for salvation are there and ready. But what God does is then 50 days later, he says this. He says, not only am I doing that, I'm choosing Pentecost as my kickstart of the church. Because here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take everything that happened on the cross and I'm going to pack it into this moment and I'm going to create it so that everybody can mass consume it. And it's going to be this crazy, cool story that comes out of it. And it's such a cool story and we'll get there. 
But the next thing that the text tells us is that it comes from heaven. Right? This event comes from heaven. Now, that's Old Testament language. So a lot of what Luke is going to do in these first four verses is that he's going to use Old Testament symbolism, and he's going to help us understand what's happening in the present. And so this language from heaven is really this Old Testament language. And I think what Luke is doing is he's saying this. He's saying, hey, the God who worked in the past is the exact same God who's working right now. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God, right? It's not the God of wrath and the God of grace, right? Grace has always been there. But now in this moment, what he's doing is that he's revealing something new about himself and about what his plans are to bring salvation to the world and to restore a broken people to himself. That's what, that's what he's talking about. But here's where it gets fun. And just imagine yourself in this room, because then what happens is, is it says that, that there's a wind, a sound, like a mighty rushing wind, that it fills the entire house. Can you imagine if that happened right here? Like what people would do and how we'd respond? It's something that they hear. Right? So this isn't imaginary. This is something that they witnessed. They heard it happen. And so it's a historical event because we trust them as eyewitnesses to this account. This is a historical event, and they hear it happen. Did you know that in the Old Testament that the word for spirit and wind are the same word? Right? Spirit and wind are the exact same word. It's the word ruach in Hebrew. It's the same word. And so when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 about the spiritual things, right, he says, he says this, he, the spirit is like the wind, right? Play on words. The spirit is like the wind. You never know where he's coming from, and you never know where he's going. And that's what happens in this scenario, right? That they're waiting in this room, and out of nowhere, the Spirit shows up. And all they know is that it's going to take them somewhere, and it's going to make them witnesses in the world, but they have no idea what that's going to look like. And so there's probably this excitement in the room of like, man, something cool is happening, but we don't know what it really is as of yet. And it says that, that it also... Um, that this Holy Spirit fills the house, fills the entire house where they were sitting. Now, again, Old Testament language, um, if you remember that the tabernacle and the temple, there was a space designated for God to dwell. And it was called the most holy place. And when God's presence filled that space, anybody who entered upon that space brought death. Except for one person, one time a year, the high priest, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. That's it. And anybody who also entered into that was, was immediately dead. And what happens in this environment, right, is that, that God's presence fills the room with the Holy Spirit. And instead of bringing death, it brings life. And I think what we have here is this, this New Testament version of what happens back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. When God created Adam and Eve, right, and he breathes life into them. And so for here in the church, it says if God is breathing life into his bride in a new way, he's bringing life to his bride, he's bringing life to the church so that it can accomplish the very thing that he has called it to be, to be and to do. That's an incredible thing. But it's not just something that, that they hear, it's also something that they see it says in, in verse 3, right, um, that divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and then rested on each one of them. 
I know that sounds a little strange, but again, let's go back to the Old Testament. Fire was the symbol for God's presence. Think of the burning bush. Think the pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness. When, when there was fire in a unique and special way that was doing things that it wasn't supposed to do, guess what? It was a symbol that God was saying, I am here, I am with you, and I am leading you. And so the people in that room, because they were devout Jews, as soon as they would have seen that, they would have known exactly, connected it to the Old Testament, said this is God's way of showing us that he is in this, that he is here, and that he is with us, and that he is helping us move forward into this this new unknown, this new wilderness. God is present. And then we reach chapter, or verse, verse 4, and it's kind of the climactic piece in this first four verses, and it says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I think that the, the key word in that sentence is the word all. And here's why. I'm going to go back to the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit had a role, but when the Holy Spirit showed up in the Old Testament, he, he, he like rested on an individual person, and he allowed that person, he gave them the ability to accomplish the task that God had given them, okay? But he didn't indwell them, and he didn't certainly indwell all people. The Spirit wasn't, that wasn't his role in the Old Testament, but yet the people they were waiting and expecting a time when God's spirit would fill everybody because it was prophesied by Joel in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Here's what it says. And it shall come to pass after that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. You see, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. That God's Spirit isn't just to accomplish one task for one person, it's for all people. And it's, and it's not just resting, it's dwelling, and yet He's given it to us so that we can still accomplish an even greater and bigger purpose in this life. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And I go, as a result of this moment, you and I can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think we have to be careful in this moment to, to remind ourselves that when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about like a, a battery that God just like shoves in your gut. It's, and we're not filled in the sense like I just ate too big of a piece of lasagna, right? Or, or that I just feel powerful because I ate my portion of Wheaties this morning, the Holy Spirit isn't, he is a presence and he is a power, but, but he, he is those things because he is a being and because he is a person. He's a part of the Trinity, the triune, eternal Godhead who has existed for all of time and will exist for all time. That's who it is. Later, Paul says that our bodies are now a temple for the Holy Spirit, which means this, is that where God used to, to dwell in a space in a building, he gets rid of that building in this moment, and he says, now I, 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 the building for me is your body. I'm not just dwelling in a building. I'm dwelling in you and me, in the very inside of us, and part of God, right? God, the Holy Spirit, is inside you and me if we have a relationship, if we have faith in Christ. And that is an incredible thing to think that that is at my disposal, that God is here in a helping way through the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus himself said this. We read this earlier. I love this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go, the helper will not come to you. I don't know about you, but if I had to choose between Team Jesus or Team Holy Spirit, I'd probably pick Team Jesus. Because he's like the Savior of the world. He's the man. He's the dude. I want to be around him. But what Jesus says is, I tell you the truth. If I don't go, then I can't send you the Holy Spirit. And that's better for you. That's, it's to our advantage that the Holy Spirit would be with us. And I say, if that's true, if that's true, then is it possible that I have missed something in my relationship with Jesus if I'm not following the Spirit? If the Spirit doesn't have a role in my life, is it possible that there's something more to this relationship with Jesus that I'm missing? Because if it's true, I would say this, it's it's radically possible that I should probably shift my life to be dependent on the Spirit. Because Jesus says it's to your advantage that the Spirit be with you. And here's the reality. We need to be dependent on the Spirit, right? Because we never know where He's coming from or where He's going. And if I'm not dependent on Him, guess what? I'm off the plane. I don't get to participate if I miss it because we need to be dependent on the Spirit. And if that's not enough, Jesus' words, by the way, He lived this out. Jesus Himself was filled by the Spirit in His baptism. The same Spirit that guided Him and helped Him is the exact same Holy Spirit that guides you and me and helps you and me. And that's such an incredible thing for us to think about. The same Spirit. And if you don't know much about the Holy Spirit, I just encourage you uh, to, to go and read more about him, pursue him, follow him. Uh, uh, just, I don't know, just ask him for his presence more and more and more and repeatedly and pursue him because he, he is the, the power behind the Christian walk. That's who he is. But in our text, the Holy Holy Spirit shows up in a unique way, and it says this in verse 4, that he gave the disciples, these 120 people, the ability to speak in other tongues as he gave them utterance. Now, these are not the same tongues that Paul references in 1 Corinthians, and so we're not going to go into that. What it means here is this, is that God gave them the ability to speak a new language, a common language that they didn't already know. It'd be like me speaking basically any other language other than English right now. I don't have that ability, but God gave them this ability to do that. You see, Jews in first century world would have known three languages. They would have known Aramaic, because that's Jesus' language. That's the street language. Uh, they would have known um, Koine Greek, which is the, the rudimentary written form of Greek. Because thanks to Alexander the Great's conquest, the entire world used Koine Greek in written form. And then they would have known their native language. And you're like, Seth, I thought that these people were Jews. So how do they have a different native language? Great question. Because they don't live in Jerusalem. They live in what we call the diaspora, which is the known world. They live out there, and what God is going to do in the rest of this passage, and I'm going to read in a second, is that he's going to give 120 people the ability to speak a language from somewhere they've never been, and he's going to kickstart the church in an amazing way. Let's read verses 5 through 11. Here's what it says. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. 
Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? And then here's the world that is represented. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. <laughs> It's so cool. It's such a cool, such a cool story, right? I love what has happened in this, this room that they've been in. Uh, they're filled with the Spirit. They begin to speak in tongues, and already it's moving from the house out into the streets. And it's already starting to move forward. The plane is starting to take off, right? And people can't help but be drawn to what is happening because this is an only God type of thing. Check out this map that, that represents the known world where all of these people come from. I love this. Look how, look how big this is. Goodness, it's huge. It just keeps going. Right? This is, this is incredible. This is the known world. And you go, why in the world are all of these people in Jerusalem? Great question. That's because of the significance of Pentecost. Pentecost was one of three required festivals that all devout Jews or males were required to attend. And so you have this, this city of Jerusalem, which, by the way, the population is about 40,000 people, okay? Right? And then you got this map, and then when all of these people come to Jerusalem, let's bring in these arrows, when all of these people come to Jerusalem, Jerusalem goes from 40,000 to half a million people. And this is what God does. He goes, I know. I could do this when there's 40,000, but I'm going to do it when there's 500,000. And here's what I'm going to do, okay? This is so crazy. Here's what I'm going to do. I, I, I'm gonna, I know everyone's going to be there, and so I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to take 120 people. Which is such a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of, of half of a million. He says, I'm going to take 120 people, and I'm going to give them the ability to speak a language that they never spoke. And guess what? We're going to radically change the course of events. You see, what God has done is he's created the gospel for mass consumption, because what happens here in this moment is that all these people hear these people talking about the mighty works of God and they are perplexed because they've never heard that in their own language. And they go, man, this has got to be true. This has got to be true. Okay, here's the deal. is I know that this is amazing and maybe some of us will go home and pray and say, God, give me the ability to speak another language. Maybe high school students who are studying Spanish and they, they just don't want to learn it. But, but the reality is, is that, this, that this language is not the most amazing thing in this text. Yes, it's an awesome miracle, but the, the language itself is just a tool. It's the conduit for what God wants the world to hear. And that's the mighty works of God. He, he, he opens this up for mass consumption that people can hear the gospel in a powerful way. Guys, we may not have the same thing happening in our context, but you know what? We have the exact same message. 
We have the exact same message that can change people's lives. And let me tell you this, this is the, the ingeniousness of God's plan. I love this. Is the, when they come to Pentecost and they hear the mighty works of God, guess what? They're there for a week and then where do they go? They go back home. They go to their jobs. They go to their, their workplaces, their homes, uh, their neighbors, their community centers, their schools. Right? They go back to where God has placed them. And guess what they do? They take this gospel with them. And they say, I am a new witness for the greatest thing, the greatest person that I could ever love, and that's Jesus Christ. <sighs> so cool the way that God worked that out to kickstart the church. Now, let me just tell you this. I want to connect it, connect this Acts 2 to the larger meta narrative of Scripture. Go back all the way to Genesis chapter 11. You find this story about the Tower of Babel. You remember this story? I love this story, right? Everybody in the world speaks the same language. And so they're like, what do we do? We're bored. I don't know. Like, we could go kayaking. Hey, let's just build a tower to heaven, right? Let's just do that. Okay. So they start handing bricks and laying things down. And, and they keep going and they keep going. And they're working together. And God's like, hey, you know, he looks down and, man, this is... This is not the right way for this to go. This isn't the way it's supposed to work. Not that you could ever reach me anyways. I'm not worried about that. But I'm worried about what you're trying to do to get to me. And so what does he do? He disperses them by confusing their language. And so some guy's calling out for brick, brick, brick. And all of a sudden it's like, blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry, what, what do you need? Do you need, do you, do you, what? And they can't communicate. And so they all leave. This in Acts chapter 2, in, in a world of mass confusion, differences in languages, Acts chapter 2 is this. It's a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Because it's God's way of saying, I am bringing one unifying language to the entire world. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here we are, 2,000 years later. And we're on the same Acts 1-8 gospel journey. It's not done yet. It's not over. And we get, to, we get to see that happen in Charlotte and in Matthews and in Ballantyne, right? And wherever we go and to Ethiopia and, to, and to, to Cuba and Puerto Rico, right? And Costa Rica, everywhere we go to the world starts here and goes there, there, there and everywhere. And that's the journey that we're on. But here's the reality. Everywhere we go, we're going to run into two types of people with this gospel, with this, with this message about the mighty works of God. We're going to run into people who, who love it and who are amazed by it and who are perplexed by it. And they go, man, I need more of that. Tell me more about that. And they're going to be the people who go, that's stupid. And they mock and they hate the gospel and they might hate you. But I kind of say this because I think this is important, is that there's no neutral position to Jesus. I, I know that we know that. But just because someone is not mocking the faith doesn't mean that they are Christian. There is no neutral position to Jesus. And we, as a part of the, being on this plane, on this gospel journey, 
We, are, we need to be active participants, and we need to be dependent participants. That Kavanaugh, that bullseye, right? That secret sauce that when I show up and the Holy Spirit shows up, awesome things can happen. But we also, then when those two things combine, that together, me and the Holy Spirit, you and the Holy Spirit, that we're living a purposed participant life, that we are living on mission for the sake of the gospel. And so how do we leave here this morning? Because we read this text and we go, man, that's such a cool text, cool story. I, I don't just see this in the, in the last like five minutes that we have here that the Spirit fills the room and we all start speaking different languages. So, so where do we go and what do we do? I would take us back to that question or to that statement that we talk about what we love. And so here's my question for myself and for you. What are we talking about? Where are we talking about it? And with whom are we talking? Because a witness is simply this, someone who loves talking about the mighty works of God. And it's not just here in church, it's everywhere. And we're not trying to convert people, but we're just talking about how awesome God is, right? And when we open up doors for those things to happen. And when I say talk about it everywhere, I don't mean this. Don't, don't, don't just go say, okay, we're going to take this into practice and we're gonna, I'm going to go debate uh, justification with, with my buddy. That has this time and place. But what I'm saying is this, what if we just simplified this to say, we just want to start talking about how God has changed and transformed my life. That's the simple piece. What God, what is God doing in my life right now? Let me tell you about it. Because God is so awesome. He's so great. He's so good, right? Here's how he's showing up in my life. Let's talk about that maybe a little bit more. Now, I'm not a betting man, nor am I a statistics man. I think I I, I 100% blocked out every single possible memory from my statistics class in college. But I would say this. I bet that that our witness... in Charlotte would, would exponentially increase, if not at least double, if each and every one of us found one new environment to start proclaiming and talking about the mighty works of God. To go, man, I can, I can get on that. I can get on board with that. Right? I want to be a part of, I want to be a part of a church that's, 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 that's booming and overwhelming with the Holy Spirit in that way everywhere that we go. Guys, here's how we, here's how we go. Let's just learn to talk about what we love most. Let's talk about Jesus. And everywhere we go, let's learn to be active participants, but always dependent on the Spirit. Because it's in His power alone that the plane is going to take off and God's going to do amazing things. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this morning. And God, I just, I just pray this. I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit in a fresh and new way. And, and I pray this. This is, this is the image I feel like you're giving me right now. If there's anybody in this room, myself included, who, who go back to that plane ride in our introduction story, right? And if we go back to that, if there's any of us who when you say, Seth, or, or you, are you willing to move that we're holding so tightly onto our armrest or into the seat in front of us that we're unwilling to move, God, would you just, would you release that? 
Would you let those things fall to the floor, whatever I'm holding on to, and may I be open-handed and say, God, I'm willing to do what you would ask me to do. Because I know that the Holy Spirit, he's going to show up and he's going to do this with me. And so, God, we just surrender this morning. We surrender our hearts. We surrender our schools, our neighborhoods, our workplaces. We surrender our homes. We surrender New City Church to you and to your glory. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.